Hello baseball fans, welcome to Sully Baseball. This is the podcast where there is no offseason and we're talking about baseball 52 weeks out of the year. There's no such thing as a leap week, so we're never going to do another one. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I am recording this, the first version of this edition of the podcast, from a Sully Baseball studio in Palo Alto, California, the birthplace of Oakland A's manager Bob Melvin, and just down the 101 from AT&T Park, the home of the San Francisco Giants. Hey, friends. It's been a couple of days, but it's been a weird couple of days. I just got a uh, tweet from one of my listeners, Chris Johnson, whose Twitter handle is StoneJohnson1. He said, Midnight Podcast Thursday, Sully Withdrawal, cannot wait. Isn't it funny? I did, for those of you who are brand new to this show, uh, I this is the first edition of the weekly Sully Baseball podcast. I did the Sully Baseball Daily podcast from October 24th, 2012 until this last Sunday, April 2nd, 2017. And I that's 1,622 straight days where I did an original podcast. And because of a bunch of reasons, but the main reason is I want to, well, put my creative chips all over the roulette table, as it were. You know, I wanted to not focus all of my creativity on the podcast, but I wanted to see if there are other avenues and there are other things I can do uh, baseball-wise in terms of writing, videos, uh, podcasting, blogging, all that stuff. And I wanted to take a new shot at it and reduce the podcast output to one day a week instead of six, and or instead of seven, I'm sorry, and but still do it all year round. Sully Baseball, my blog, sullybaseball.com. I'm still doing the Sully Baseball card of the day each day, and I still update on Twitter, but this is my first time doing the weekly show, and hey, if you're a fan of the podcast, of the daily podcast, welcome back. You know, it's only been, what, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, there's only been three days where you haven't heard me, and in fact, uh, I've been on a couple of guests on a couple of podcasts, so if you're jumping around the dial... You really only have not heard me for one day since October 24th, 2012. So it's not like this is a, 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 a tearful reunion. You know, I, I'm not Tom Hanks in, in Castaway. You know, I've only been gone a couple of days. So, but the season's begun. The season has absolutely begun. And uh, you know what? Doesn't it just seem better? Seriously, doesn't life just seem better if you could turn on, there's a ball game, a ball game that matters in terms of the, the pennant race, in terms of you know, who's going to be in first, who's going to be this, that, or the other thing. I mean, as I'm recording this, I can look around. The Red Sox and Pirates are tied. Actually, there's no score, and they're going to extra innings. Obviously, Chris Sale, uh, whatever uniform they put in his locker, he was fine. He didn't cut it up. He didn't go bananas. Uh, you know, you're looking around, it looks like there's another 1-1 uh, game going on between the Braves and Mets, and a couple of games are over. The Orioles, hey, Dan Roddix at the Baltimore Sun, thanks for having me on your podcast. Orioles are 2-0, and look at that, not a bad start. The Twins are 2-0, and they clobbered the Royals 9-1, not a bad start. The Mariners are 
0-2. The Astros are 2-0. My prediction that the Houston rotation would be, you know, not reliable was, I don't know, not reliable for the first two games. And it looks like the Indians and Rangers are going to play a slugfest where the final score will probably be in triple digits. But they're ball games. They're real. And, and I know the people who defended the World Baseball Classic will object to that, but these are the games that build up to who goes to the playoffs, who goes to the World Series. And they're all things that, you know, matter to a baseball fan. One of the things that I, I, I objected to, I guess, in a way, to the World Baseball Classic, and again, I'm never going to tell someone not to enjoy baseball. Go, go watch it. If it's your thing, fine. But one of the things that feels weird about it is it feels like, well, obviously it's an opening act. You know, it's the, it's the opening act to a band. It's the opening, you know, I did a lot of stand-up comedy in, you know, in my 20s and 30s, and there was always an opener, there was always a middle act, and there was always the headliner. Well, the, the World Baseball cl Classic felt like an opening act. You know, I felt like, oh, okay, well, while we're here waiting for the season to start, let's do this fun thing. And there's something about jumping right into spring training with, and we're going to have competitive games right off the bat. I'm not ready for that. I'm not ready for that. I want to get used to it. I want to sit in a comfortable chair. I want to say there's a certain rhythm to the game of baseball that your pal Sully enjoys. I said, you know, I'm not, you're not going to get me right now you're not going to cannonball into, man, it's all on the line. Yeah, really? It's not even tax day yet. It can't all be on the line. They're still playing college basketball. And it struck me using a you know, comedian analogy that a lot of times I would see comics try material that may be a bit racy, may be a bit politically incorrect, may be that requires a certain amount of trust from the audience. There have been great comedians who have done very daring pieces of material, but they earned that right. They earned that. They got to the point where the audience is like, okay, we'll go with you there. And it always feels like the World Baseball Classic is like one of those comics who tries something. Well, hey, hey, uh, you know, uh, Richard Pryor did that. Yeah, because he's Richard Pryor. Well, hey, we're having fun. Isn't it as great as the World Series? No, the World Series has earned it. And the season earns it. The season earns it because you get revved up. You've seen the team play. You've seen them mix. You've seen them put together. You've seen, okay, they need this piece or that piece in order to put it over the top. To see a bunch of teams where you have no familiarity with, no sense of are they good, or how do they play together, and then to say, let's see him go for the title. Okay, go ahead. I need more buildup. Maybe that makes me an old fart. But I need a little more buildup. And now we've got it. We've got the season now. And as uh, my dear listener Ray, who has been a great supporter of the podcast and, and is my, you know, I've never met him, but he's my online friend 
And uh, he thinks I, you know, I probably swear a little too much on here. And if I do, I, I tend to apologize right to him. He pointed out something that I said on the Daily Podcast a while ago, which is this strange sense when the season begins. And I just went through rattling off some of the results of some of the games and everything. There's always a sense of it's early. It's early. That's just, you know, the, the, just don't get too high, don't get too low. And that's true. You can't get too high or too low in a baseball scene because there are ebbs and flows to it. Some great teams go on great stretches. Some great teams go on great runs. Some great team, some terrible teams go on a winning streak. Some championship teams go on a losing streak. I remember there was a point in 2004 where the Red Sox looked like they couldn't get out of their own way at the, at the end of June and the beginning of July. Happens all the time. And the best teams tend to click, but then you get to the end of the year when everything's bunched together, and it basically can turn into who had the hottest streak at the end of the year, and that can put them over the top. But what Ray reminded me was something I talked about, and I think he's right, because I said it, and therefore I'm agreeing with me. Go, go <laughs> chart that sentence, would you? These games count. These games count as much as the games at the end of the year. Just like runs count in the first as much as they do in the tenth. Now, you're in better shape if you start piling up the runs in the first, second, or third inning, because if you don't, then the entire game, and as we saw in the World Series, possibly the entire championship could be determined by a bounce here or maybe a bounce there. And if you score those runs early, well, you can absorb even a Rajay Davis home run. Imagine if the Cubs hadn't pounded those home runs, including that leadoff home run in Game 7 and the home run by David Ross. All of a sudden, the Rajay Davis home run isn't a, oh, what a great thing to turn into a great game, but the thing that prolonged the billy goat. These games count. And I, I go back to the 2011 Red Sox. Is it 2011 or 2011? Have we determined this, that, or the other thing on that? Now, when I bring up the 2011 Red Sox, they missed the postseason by one game, on the greatest final day of the season, where the Braves also did a classic belly flop. But the Red Sox were one swing away of winning. The Rays were one swing away from losing. And the Red Sox bullpen, as they did all that month, fell apart. And the final image of Carl Crawford diving for the ball and falling short and the Orioles coming back to win. And then ESPN or wherever it was cut immediately to the Rays and the Yankees where Evan Longoria hit the walk-off home run and the Rays went to the playoffs. People remember, it's the greatest finale. And, and as a Red Sox fan, I can admit, that's a great finale. And it helps that the Red Sox have won a World Series since and made it to the playoffs since. So it kind of like, you know, it, it, it eases the pain of that a little bit. But the Red Sox were supposed to be a tremendous team that year. A lot of people were picking them to go far. 
and they came short one game. And so people remember that specific game, but then they also remember the, the beer and the chicken and the fried chicken and everything like that, and the fact that the Red Sox went 7-20 and in September. Seven and 20. They lost 20 of their last 27 games. The Red Sox were in first place by themselves on September 1st, 2011. And then they went on to lose 20 of their final 27 games. They finished seven games. They dropped seven and a half games against the Yankees over the last month of the season. And then let the Rays, who were just running out the clock get to the division series. People remember that. They show that clip. But here's something I bet you forgot. Unless, of course, you've been listening to Celebrities with Daily Podcast, but I bring this up again. The Red Sox started the season 0-6. The Red Sox started the season losing 10 of their last, uh, of their first 12 games. They lost... 10 of the first 12 games, and 20 of their final 27 games. Bookending a season where the rest of it, they were world beaters. But think about this for a second. They got clobbered and swept by the Texas Rangers to begin the season. And as it turned out, the Rangers were one ill-timed leap away from winning the World Series that year. And then they got swept by the Cleveland Indians. And then they won a game against the Yankees. They won two out of three against the Yankees, but then they got swept by Tampa. And then they lost to Toronto. They were off to such a horrible, horrible start. They were five games out of first place, 11 games into the season. That's almost impossible to do. Now, imagine, just imagine, if instead of going... Ten, uh, two and what was it? Two and ten in their first twelve games. Imagine if they went five and seven. I'll still give them a losing record, but five and seven. All of a sudden, those are games they don't have to pick up towards the end of the year. They don't have to make up those losses. A mediocre start could have saved the Red Sox down the stretch. A, eh, not, not looking too good start could have been the difference between an October or a humiliating loss, which is still shown. When people talk about wild card races and one of the great collapses and they, they'll show the Longoria home run left and right, they don't show that if the Red Sox don't go 5-7 and seven to start the season. Now, we've seen teams get off to crap starts and then go on a great run. And we've also seen teams start off like a house of fire and then <laughs> turn around and stink. I, there was one year the Marlins looked like they, were, they started out of the gate, like, oh, my God, are they going to win? But no, it's because they started the season against the Washington Nationals, who were terrible. And they like had their first two of their first three series against Washington, and they ran up the score against them. So, oh man, the Marlins! Who would have predicted the Marlins? Nobody, because they were playing a, a lousy team. So obviously, you can't you know you can't treat a losing streak in April as 
the end-all, be-all of a season, much like you can't treat falling behind 5 nothing in the first, you can come back from 5 nothing in the first. I've seen, we've all seen that. We've all seen teams jump out to big leads, the other team chips away, chips away, chips away, and then has a big rally. We've seen that. It just, you're better off not falling down 5 nothing in the first. Likewise, you could start the season looking like a chump and wind up winning the division, or you can start the season like a house of fire and then flame out. These are all things that can happen. It's just better to start red hot, is what I'm saying. So I'm looking around. I love that I can look around. The MLB.com app is still the greatest thing. In the, it, 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 other than BaseballReference.com, which is the single greatest website in the history of the planet Earth, there's still no score in Boston. The great thing is you all know what happened. And the other thing is, is that, you know, I'm not going to try to make this be about daily events because we're doing it, uh, you know, we're doing it once a week now. But keep in mind, if your team gets off to a fast start, like Houston, like Cleveland, like Minnesota, like Baltimore, it becomes even more critical in the American League. It becomes more critical in the American League as opposed to the National League. The National League, we have a real good sense of who's good. We have a really, really good sense of who's good. We know the Cubs. We know Los Angeles. We know the Giants. We know the Mets. We know Washington. And we know St. Louis are all going to be really, really good. And to pierce that group of teams is probably, you know, if you're to be a team that I didn't just rattle off and potentially make the playoffs, that's going to be really, really tough. And I bring back last year the Pittsburgh Pirates. Remember, they, got, they had a little bit of a slump in April. They got off to a fast start, then they went on a slump, then they won a fast start again, they got to a winning record, then they went on a slump, and then they went on a terrible slump in the middle of June and July, and they just, they couldn't get their bearings. They had a weird season last year. And they wound up finishing with a losing record, even though I thought they were going to be one of the elite teams in the game. And you can't afford that. You can't afford a crap month if you want to be a surprise contender in the National League. But think about the American League for a second. Think about the American League. I'm going to go to the American League for a second. I'm at BaseballReference.com, the single greatest website in the history of the planet Earth. I'm not giving them two plugs. Who's going to stink in the American League? Well, I said Minnesota, but they've won their first two games. Uh, I would have said Oakland, but, you know, they've looked, you know, save for a home run the other day that, that lost to the Angels, they've actually looked pretty good. They look like they may be a decent team, but then again, they're playing the Angels, so who knows? I would have said Tampa, but man, they, their pitching looks really good. My point is, if you look up and down the American League, if you're a team that's supposed to be bad, like the A's, like the Twins, like, um, well, the Rays aren't supposed to be bad, like the Angels, I think the Angels are going to be bad. But you get off to a decent start. Then, think about 
how all those teams are probably going to cluster. There may not be a 100-loss team nor a 100-win team in the American League this year. There may not be a team that you look at and go, like, man, they're a powerhouse. Okay, maybe Cleveland will. I'm, I'm not going to put Boston there yet. But there's also, if the Twins and if the A's and if the Rays play above their heads, no team that you can look at and go, oh, man, they're an automatic, you know, they're, they're an automatic win when you play them. So that means if you're projecting the number of teams that are going to win between 80 and 86 games are, I don't know, the American League. The whole damn league. You can say, you can make an argument, will win, you know, 80-something games. And you can see the concept of the American League wildcard going into September, going like, who's in contention? In the American League? Yeah, the American League. The whole damn thing. Everyone's in contention. A win here, a win there will probably be the difference. And so when you think of that in the American League, you really aren't in a position to waste wins. You really aren't in a position to say, well, you know, we're off to a slow start, but, you know, we'll pick it back up. Because like the 2011 Red Sox, you could find yourself scrambling and looking back going, oh, man, what I would have given for a few more wins in April. Now, you have to be smart. You don't manage a game in April the same way that you manage Game 7 of the World Series. We've seen Madison Bumgarner come out of the bullpen. We've seen people make weird decisions or pulling this and bringing this person in and that person in and this person coming out of the pen and this person coming off the bench because it's all down to one game and it doesn't matter. There's no tomorrow. There's plenty of tomorrows. There's about 160 tomorrows left. So you have to manage with that in mind too. You know, Bochi, as much as he wants to, can't bring Bumgarner out of the bullpen in games in, in April, although maybe he should be bringing him off the bench to pinch hit, but that's another story. But it doesn't mean you can afford to give up tons of games. If you want to be a surprise winner in the American League, one of the best ways to play in October, start winning in April. With this being a weekly podcast, I'm going to do a couple of, well, I'm going to do a few features. In this one, I may just have one, and that is I'm going to continue doing the series of the teams that should have won. And for those of you who are new to the podcast, these are the teams that, in, for, I'm doing this for each franchise, where these are the teams where a, it would have been the greatest thing for that franchise if they had won the World Series that year. In terms of the storylines, in terms of the players on there, in terms of the legends who are there. And that... Sometimes you have a team that wins a World Series, you know, kind of close to the years I'm talking about. But for whatever reason, the combination of players on the teams that I'm mentioning and the storylines would have been so compelling and so perfect if they had won that year that you look back and go, oh, man, if only they had won it. Some of the examples I'd had 
are the 78 Red Sox with all the future Hall of Famers and legends on that team. The 2001 Yankees, even though they were the three-time defending world champs, the storylines after September 11th and some of the cast on that team would have been really, really special. The 93 Braves, which was the arrival of Maddox and McGriff, but they still had Gant, they still had Deion Sanders, they still had Terry Pendleton. It was a perfect blend of Braves players. I had the 88 Mets, who had the chance to become the team of that decade. I had the, uh, what, what was the Giants team I had? Oh, it was the 93 Giants. The 93 Giants would have been the perfect one for that. Sometimes it takes me a second to remember. I also had the 2002 A's, the team that would have given them literally a Hollywood ending. Well, it's funny. I'm going to bring up, I'm going to go to another franchise right now. I'm going to go to the Philadelphia Phillies. Phillies are a team that I have a little bit of affection for. I remember when I was growing up, my cousins who grew up in Delaware were big Phillies fans. And seeing that I didn't think the Red Sox were allowed to go to the postseason because I was growing up in the late 70s, early 80s, I rooted for the Philadelphia Phillies when they got into the postseason because it would make my cousins happy. And eventually they did win the World Series in 1980, and I was thrilled for them. And I used to pretend to be Tug McGraw jumping up and down on the mound in my front yard. In fact, my Little League team were the Phillies, and we had terrible uniforms. Terrible, terrible uniforms. But for the most part, unless they play the Giants, I found myself rooting for the Philadelphia Phillies over the years. They have yet to play the Red Sox in the World Series. I, I, sorry, I don't count the 1915 World Series. I wasn't there. Phillies are, of course, a very strange franchise. They were the second banana franchise in Philadelphia for years and years while the Philadelphia Athletics won championships and pennants for all those years. Then the A's started to disintegrate, and right around the time that teams started to move, the A's were the second banana in Philadelphia, and the Phillies were winning the National League pennant in 1950 and suddenly were competitive. And it was the A's who found greener pastures, or at least greener uniforms, first in Kansas City and then in Oakland, leaving Philadelphia to the Phillies. They remained the only original franchise to not have a world championship when they played in the 1980 World Series and beat the Kansas City Royals. I remember that World Series. It was a great World Series. And the Phillies were one of the elite teams in baseball in the late 70s through the early 1980s. Now, what I did not know as a kid jumping up and down pretending to be Tug McGraw was the history of futility that the Philadelphia Phillies are a team that over the years, to quote Voltaire, they suck. 10,741 losses from 1883 till last night. And they were originally called the Quakers. From 1883 to 1889, they were called the Quakers. And true to their name, they didn't put up a fight. They changed their name to the Phillies. For about an hour and a half in the 1940s, they became the Blue Jays, but no one cared. And then they went back to become the Phillies. The Phillies are a dumb name. Do you want, I'll, I'll say it. When it comes down to baseball names, Philadelphia, which is a great city, really was not the best at naming their teams. Athletics and Phillies. Really? 
That, that's the best you can give us? Why the, the A's were not the elephants, I'll never understand. The elephants, was their, they were their symbol. They were on the, the logo. It was on the uniform for a while. The Philadelphia Elephants. That's a great name. Philadelphia Phillies? Come on. You can do better than that. Now, the Phillies won the pennant in 1915. They lost to the Red Sox. They won the pennant in 1950. They lost to the Yankees, and that was their only two trips to the World Series for a very, very long period of time. Now, they've had some moments of crushing, crushing losses over the years. One of the most famous collapses in the history of baseball was the 1964 Phillies, who, under Gene Mock, who had a, uh, well, let's just say he had a penchant for collapses, and when we do the Angels, we'll bring Gene Mock up again. This was a team that, of course, you know, we're going back and forth in a very, very competitive National League, where you had the Cardinals, you had the Giants, you had the Dodgers, all these teams, but with just about, what, with 11 games to go, they had a five-and-a-half game lead. With 12 games to go, they had a six-and-a-half game lead. They were up six-and-a-half games on September 20th. On the Reds, they had a six-and-a-half game lead. On the Cardinals, they were, all they had to do was not be terrible down the stretch, and they couldn't quite pull that off. They were a 90-win team where they had a, was 12 games to go, and, all the, and the rest of the way, they were, they were just an absolute catastrophe. And they, the Gene Mock panicked, and they kept pitching, you know, he kept pitching the same two pitchers right down the stretch, Short and Bunning kept pitching every damn night. And they got swept by the Reds. They got swept by the Braves. They got swept by the Cardinals. And it didn't matter that they won their final two games because the Cardinals won. And the Cardinals went on to win the World Series. And that was considered one of the epic collapses in the history of baseball and haunted Gene Mock for, oh, I don't know, ever. That became his legacy until he started blowing leads in California. Now, I was going to say that was it because it, that hung over the team for so long. And it even hung over the team when the, they finally started putting quality products on the field. They won 101 games in 1976. How perfect would it have been in 1976? The bicentennial in Philadelphia, Rocky came out, and the Phillies won 101 games. And people talk about that team as if they were just happy to be there in the league championship series. Like, well, you know, they were playing the Reds, and the Reds, well, you know, there was no way they were going to beat the Reds. I mean, now, the Reds won 102 games. It's only one more game than the Phillies won that year. But you know what? A grand total of nobody believed the Phillies could do it. The next year, the Phillies won 101 games again. And Mike Schmidt was the, man, was the, uh, the, was the star. Danny Ozark. I mean, Steve Carlton was amazing. And they, that was a team that I really, really considered putting in. Yes, it would have been perfect to see them win in the year of the Bicentennial. And Dick Allen would have been there as well, who was a member of the 64 Phillies. But that 77 Phillies team was stacked. And they probably should have beaten Los Angeles in the league championship series. 
and a couple of calls didn't go their way, and Phillies fans never forgot it. But that's not the year I'm picking. Nor am I picking 78 because, frankly, the Dodgers were better that year. And the, they won the World Series finally with Dallas Green. They won the pennant again in 1983. But that was kind of, that 83 team was a weird team because it was a lot of veterans and it was also a lot of former Reds. Pete Rose, Joe Morgan, Tony Perez were all on that team. They were the Philadelphia Reds. Now the 93 Phillies are a team to bring up because, of course, the Joe Carter homer. But that was also a team that had no business being in the World Series. I'm sorry, that was a likable team. Likable, likable team. Granted, the, the, post career, the post-playing careers of Darren Dalton, Lenny Dykstra, and Kurt Schilling have been, and, and Mitch Williams have been ah, interesting. But the two best teams in baseball that year were the Giants and the Braves. So much so that those two teams were the teams that should have won for each of their franchises. And it would blow the mind of some of my listeners, including Cubs fan with an eight, one of my most rabid listeners, if I said 1993 had three separate teams that should have been the team to win. So I can't do that. So it brings us to the year I'm going to bring up. And it's an interesting call because normally you would think I would pick a team that did not have players who were World Series champs. That you did not have, that the whole idea of it was like, like, for example, the year that I picked for the Red Sox would have been a chance to see Yastrzemski and Rice and Fisk and Tiant and all these beloved Red Sox. And the same thing with the Giants. You would have Bonds, you'd have Will Clark, you'd have Robbie Thompson, Rod Beck, Matt Williams, all these beloved Giants win. And you got the chance to win their ring. But the year I'm going to pick for the Philadelphia Phillies, to me, when I stop and thought about it, it was a no-brainer. It was 2011. The 2011 Phillies existed for one purpose only, to win the World Series. And with a championship in 2011, not only would it put this era of Phillies teams in a position to be called one of the best streaks that any team has had in the wildcard era, but it also would have given the Phillies of that era a unique place in their history and the city's history. In 2011, the Philadelphia Phillies won 102 games. The two teams I mentioned before, 76 and 77, those teams won 101. Those were the record for the history of a franchise that took its own sweet-ass time winning a World Series. This team won 102, one more than any Phillies team in history. Also, they had the second highest attendance in the history of the franchise. The only team that drew better the year before, 2010, where they were coming off back-to-back pennants. But with those back-to-back pennants, the Phillies put themselves in a unique position for their team, for their city, and everything. They won the division in 2007 partly because of the collapse of the New York Mets. 
And in some ways, that was more of the Mets' loss than the Phillies' success, especially after the Phillies got clobbered by the Colorado Rockies in the division series. Then the next year, which was supposed to be the Cubs' year, remember 2008? That was supposed to be the Cubs' turn? Nope. The Phillies got past the Brewers. I bet you forgot the Brewers were in the playoffs. Got past Los Angeles and then played Tampa in a really weird World Series that included a rain delay in Game 5 that suspended the game, and of which we had a Reader's Digest version of the clincher. It's like, okay, okay, let's start the game in the seventh. Phillies won the World Series against Tampa Bay. The next year, they went to the World Series again. This time they lost to the Yankees. It was actually a really thrilling World Series. The year afterwards, they went to the League Championship Series, and it looked like they were going to rampage their way through all of baseball, especially after their postseason began with a Roy Halladay no-hitter. But they faced the buzzsaw that was Tim Lincecum and the San Francisco Giants, who had their own thoughts of turning this decade to their own. This gave us 2011. What made 2011 special for the Phillies? Well, the Phillies won the World Series, as I said, in 2008, and then midway through the next year, they acquired Cliff Lee. And Cliff Lee seemed to fit the team like a glove and was a badass in the postseason. Coming off of a Cy Young season in Cleveland the year before, he looked and felt like a Philly and, and did an amazing job. But the Phillies coveted Roy Halladay. And instead of creating the ultimate rotation of Roy Halladay, Cliff Lee, and Cole Hamels, they traded away the Cliff Lee to the Seattle Mariners to get prospects to replenish the farm system that they sent off to get Roy Halladay from Toronto. And it was kind of disappointing. Like, oh, okay, I guess it's not going to be the ultimate rotation. I guess it's going to be uh, a, a really good rotation, but I was hoping for something dominant. And the Phillies came up short in the postseason. Along the way, they traded for Roy Oswalt, which I always thought was an offering to the team to say, hey, sorry we traded away Cliff Lee. Will you accept Roy Oswalt? Well, then Cliff Lee went to free agency. Everyone and their mother thought he was going to the Yankees because he was going to be the highest, you know, the highest bid. And lo and behold, Cliff Lee said, nope, I'm going to the Phillies. And they got the dream rotation. They got the dream rotation of Halliday, Lee, Hamels, and Oswalt. Little did they know Vance Worley was going to throw in a bunch as well. Brad Lidge was no longer the Brad Lidge the Great of 2008 and the terrible Brad Lidge of 2009. It was now Ryan Madsen's bullpen. And along the way, they still had Carlos Ruiz, Ryan Howard, Chase Utley, uh, Jimmy Rollins, Shane Victorino, and they now had Hunter Pence and Raul Banias in their outfield. Everyone was there. And a chance for this homegrown Phillies team, Howard Utley, Rollins, Ruiz, and all the ones who are homegrown, to win another title. But also 
to see the great rotation that everyone wanted to see pitch together. The thing that made this team special, it was the right combination. Everyone loved Halliday. Everyone loved Lee. Everyone loved the hitters. And became the best team that the Phillies ever put on the field with 102 wins. And if they had won the World Series, you could have made a really compelling case that that Philadelphia Phillies team would have been the greatest Philadelphia team in the history of Philadelphia sports. You could make the case of the Broad Street bullies and the Flyers, but they only won a few titles. You could make the case of the Mike Schmidt era uh, Phillies, but they only won it once. You could make the Dr. J, Moses Malone, Philadelphia 76ers, but they only won it once. You could make the case of, no, you can't make the case for the Eagles. I won't let you. You can only make the case of going back to the days of Connie Mack, a franchise that's not even there anymore, and of a time of pre-integration where it's kind of difficult to weigh the pros and cons of that, especially when you consider that Jimmy Rollins, Ryan Howard, and Shane Victorino would not even been allowed to play on that team, nor would have Raul Ibanez. So this was a chance to not only cement the legacy. Once your team wins two titles, you don't have to answer to anybody. But to say, this is the best Philadelphia team ever. Ever. That's what went on the line. And when the Atlanta Braves did an amazing faceplant down the stretch, the St. Louis Cardinals, who backed into the postseason in 2011, had basically no reason being in the playoffs. They were only there because of the misfortune of Atlanta. Suddenly, the Phillies looked up and said, we're going to throw Halliday, Lee, Hamels, and uh, Oswald, and things are going to look great. In the division series, in game one, the Cardinals jumped off to a 3-0 lead. Remember what I said earlier? You can fall behind 3-0, but you can catch up. Well, that's exactly what happened. Roy Halladay was in a no-hitter form, but eventually the Phillies scored five in the six, and it looked like a laugher. And in fact, the Phillies were up 4-0 in the second inning of game two, and it's just like, this is a sweep. Cliff Lee's on the mound. They're already up 1-0. And from that moment, things became weird. In the fourth inning, the St. Louis Cardinals went on a run, which included a, a the inning ended with the tying run being thrown out the plate. So 4 nothing turned into 4-3, but then it turned into 4-4, and then Pujols signaled to make it 5-4, and then that was it. So the Cardinals tied the series. But don't worry, hand the ball over, and you know Cole Hamels pitching game uh, game three. And, you know, fine. He threw, H, he threw six shutout innings. Okay, all is well in the world. The Phillies are going to win this. So they, they lost one fluke game. And then the rally, they were up 2 nothing. The rally score runs across. The Cardinals tie it, send it to game five. Okay, folks, this is just a formality. This is just a formality. And then came the game that basically... 
my monologue at the top where I talked about how those early wins, not early win the former White Sox, but those early wins can be the difference. Well, in the beginning of the deciding game of that series between Roy Halladay and Chris Carpenter, for Cal tripled to lead off the game, Schumacher doubled to drive him in. One nothing, two batters in. Don't relax. It's only one run. Just relax. There's a lot of baseball to be played. It's not like that one run is going to be the only run scored in the game. Then Chris Carpenter was dealing. Roy Halladay was dealing. Roy Halladay was shutting him down left and right. Chris Carpenter was shutting him down left and right. Phillies looked like they were going to rally a couple of times, but no, no one comes across. Nope, they're rallying in the eighth. They're rallying in the eighth. And nope, nope, nothing's happening there. And then they get to the bottom of the ninth. Carpenter still on the mound. Like, okay, all they need is one run. And I remember thinking, watching that game, all they need is one run. And they have Chase Utley, Hunter Pence. Man, it's weird seeing him on the other side of a, of a game, not in the Giants uniform. And Ryan Howard. Got, they've got this. They're going to score one run. Utley flies out. Hunter Pence grounds out. All right, so here's what it's come down to. Ryan Howard's going to homer to tie the game. There was even down to their last out. No part of me thought the Cardinals were about this, this team that stumbled into the postseason were about to unseat the greatest team in the history of Philadelphia sports. And I've never seen a game, a series, or the legacy of a team end in a more apt metaphor than what happened. Ryan Howard swung. The ball grounded to second. Howard tore something in his leg or his thigh or something and collapsed in a heap. The play was made. The Cardinals won. They started celebrating. And as the Cardinals were celebrating, Ryan Howard was being treated and carried off the field. And the Cardinals went on to win the World Series. The Phillies would have clobbered the Brewers. The Phillies would have made minced meat out of the Texas Rangers. All they needed to do was score two runs. Two runs. All they had to do was make up for the one run that was scored two batters into the game. And I'm absolutely certain that when people look back and say, what's the greatest Philadelphia team of all time? The debate would be non-existent. It's the Philadelphia Phillies of the late 2000s, early 2010s. With Cliff Lee getting his ring, he never got one. Roy Halladay getting his ring, he never got one. Raul Banya's getting his ring, he never got one. It was the perfect Phillies team of that era and would have left the perfect Philly legacy of that time. Instead, since then, the Phillies have had, you know, have not been good. And since then, the Phillies also held on to the team just a little bit too long. They held on to Lee, before, and he eventually had no trade value. They held on to Howard. They held on to Rollins. They held on to Ruiz. They held on to all these players because, like, wait, 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 wait. 
This is the greatest Philly team of all time, right? Right? 500 in 2012, losing records, 99 losses in 2015, and running through managers as well. The Phillies, had they won in 2011, you could, would you call them a dynasty? Well, three pennants in four years and two titles, including the greatest regular season team in their team's history. As it is, it's a wonderful run. As it is, five straight trips to the postseason, two pennants and a championship, is nothing to sneeze at, especially when you consider that's half the titles the Phillies have won since they were called the Quakers. But this is not about, hey, good job. This is about, man, what a legacy you are on the verge of clinching. And instead, you had Ryan Howard fallen in a heap. So that's my team that should have won, the Philadelphia Phillies of 2011. If you want me to cover a team that should have won, just let me know. Follow me on Twitter at Sully Baseball. Well, folks, hey, I'm going to go check to see, did the Red Sox win that game? You already know. It happened last week. Well, the, nope, it's in the 11th inning. Who knows? Maybe that game will be going on the next time I do a podcast, which will be next Thursday. So, folks, people who have traveled down the River Sully all these years, thanks for coming back. Thanks for joining me here on Thursday, the 6th day of April 2017, where we start a new kind of podcast once a week. And I'll be here next week. If you want me to talk about anything or bring anything up, if you have thoughts about the teams that should have won, shoot me via Twitter. Go to SullyBaseball.com. Like me on Facebook. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram. I'm everywhere. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. Doing it weekly, but doing it with no less passion. This is the first weekly edition of Sully Baseball, the podcast that does not have an offseason. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Weekly or daily, you can always call me Sully.